So Okay. So tonight we're doing Second Corinthians and then we're doing Galatians, right? So last time we met together, we did First Corinthians. I uh, hope you guys remember what we covered. If not, there's no need to stress. There's always the podcast, there's always the, the downloads, um, and we'll share the links to that after the session on the WhatsApp group. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Second Corinthians. So this is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And by way of introduction, so this book is written in AD 55, right? Or AD 56, somewhere there. It's a couple of years after First Corinthians. Uh, Paul had visited the church in Corinth after the first letter. So after First Corinthians, he had visited the church and it was quite a painful visit for him. So if you look quickly with me to chapter 2, if you go to chapter 2 verse 1, it says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Right, that's what Paul is saying. For, I, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. <clears throat> so Second Corinthians is Paul's most personal and intimate letter. You really get an insight into Paul's heart and his emotions. So he even says, I wrote this letter with tears. Right? It's a sorrowful letter. We don't know exactly what happened. Um, there's things that we may infer from what we read in this book. But we know that they must have rejected him in some way because Paul has to defend his apostleship. Right? He has to defend uh, that he is an apostle of Christ. He has to defend um, himself. And he wrote them a severe letter, but the severe letter had produced repentance from their side. It produced fruit. So if you look with me quickly in chapter 7 as well. So chapter 7 of Second Corinthians verse 8. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. <clears throat> so he differentiates between the two. There is a godly sorrow and there is a worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is what we all experience when we get found out. If you steal and you get caught, or if you lie and you're exposed, if you murder and you're apprehended, you may be sorry for those things, but you are more sorry that you got caught, right? That is worldly sorrow and it leads to death because it doesn't lead to any change. If anything, it can make you a better thief or a better murderer or a better liar because you think, I got caught doing this, maybe next time I need to do it like this. You know, I should steal in this manner or I should lie in that way. But look at godly sorrow. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, he says, Foresee what, earnest, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So godly sorrow, which is conviction of sin, leads to salvation. 
And for those who are already in Christ, it produces fruit. Right? Real, re real rep repentance produces fruit and zeal, indignation and a holy fear. So we see in just those two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter, chapter 7, what the previous severe letter did and how they responded to it. Right? So now let's look at what Paul generally addresses in this book. So let's go back to chapter 3. Right? In chapter 3 um, of 2 Corinthians, here Paul is talking about the ministry. So he says in verse 5, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So you know, some people will come and will say, Doctrine kills, but the Spirit gives life, right? Or you Christians who focus on theology and the Bible and your big complicated doctrines, all you need is a Spirit. You need to be full of the Spirit. You need to be baptized uh, in the Spirit, speak in tongues. Don't quench the Spirit with your doctrine. But again, it's ridiculous to think that Paul is here is downplaying doctrine, right? Paul's letters are full of doctrine. And what he means in this passage when he talks about the letter that kills is the condemning power of the law, right? Legalism kills. It doesn't save anyone. It destroys people. It destroys churches. That is religion. But true spirit-filled Christianity saves. It saves and it sanctifies. And then Paul talks about the Jews. So if you look at verse 15 of chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, right? So remember, Moses here refers to the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. So he says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is, this is so important for our sanctification, because how are we changed according to this passage? It's by beholding the glory of the Lord. Remember what Psalm 115 teaches us. It says that we become what we worship. If you worship the Lord as you see Him, as you behold Him, as He's revealed in Scripture, and and uh, and made alive to us in our hearts, as we behold him, we are actually being changed to become more like him, to become more like Christ. And that is why Paul will go on to say uh, in chapter 4, if you look at verse 4, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you see the word image of God there. In verse 4 over here, and then if you look back at verse 18 of chapter 3, right? Uh, uh, verse 18 of chapter 3 says, We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what should the word image remind you of? Being made in the image of God. What comes to mind when you think of that? It's Genesis, right? We were created in the image of God. And we fell from that, right? Our image was tarnished. But we are being restored. And the good news is that we are being restored to something greater than just what Adam was before the fall, right? Jesus is the greater Adam. We're not being restored to this Adam. We are being restored to the greater Adam, who is Jesus, 
and verse 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. <clears throat> so that is Christocentric preaching, right? Christ-centered preaching. When we worship, as we sit under the preaching of God's word, we are actually being changed because it is Christ being preached. Through the preaching, we see Christ. And that is how we are changed from one degree to another, because we behold him. So Christ is revealed in his word. If you want to see the Lord Jesus Christ, look to the word and look to the word, look to his word daily. Right. Sanctification isn't from Monday to Saturday. Right. Sanctification doesn't have working hours uh, where it kicks in on a Monday or it stops on a certain point. It occurs every day, it occurs even on a Sunday, even in the worship service, as you behold Christ, you are actually being changed more and more into his likeness. So Sundays are for sanctification as well. And how do you see Christ in the preaching of the word um, every Sunday? It's in the content being preached, right? Because preaching is the authoritative declaration of the word and the will of God with the intention of revealing Christ to the hearers. And when it comes to preaching, there's this analogy from, uh, I think it's Douglas Wilson that, that I really like. He says that, Christ is not seen by a painting on a wall, but through a window. So the preacher is not there with a paint and a paintbrush to paint, to paint for you a picture of who Christ is. He's there by the window and he's a window cleaner, right? He's there to make it clearer for you to see who Christ is, right? And when you read, say, the book of Hebrews, for example, so the book of Hebrews, um, it's a sermon, right? And it's an incredible book. I know a lot of a lot of folks say Romans is up there. I think Hebrews is a masterpiece. If you put a gun to my head and I'm picking, and if you ask me, I'm going to pick uh, um, Hebrews over Romans. And I know that statement will have my Calvinist membership, membership card suspended. But if you read Hebrews, it's a sermon and it has a lot of content. But there's no doubt that it's all about Christ. So you can go away from it. And you might not know, um, you know, all about the, the temple and the sacrifices and the Old Testament figures and all these other details. But you will know this from it, that Christ is superior to everyone else. And Christ is amazing, right? Christ is to be found throughout the Bible. And to fail to reveal him through that particular window is, is really a function of some form of unbelief. When the scriptures are preached in all their appropriate parts and relations, the result is Christ Christocentric, right? That is what we should be praying for, that people get to God's word, uh, people sit under the preaching of God's word and come away seeing Christ, right? That's, that's my prayer for these sessions and School of the Bible. And that is how people get saved, right? As they see Christ. So look at verse 6. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is important for a church. As a church um, at Heritage, that should always be our ethos, our main focus. It's Jesus Christ. Why do churches fall into fundamentalism? It's because it becomes about all these other things and we forget that the main thing is the main thing. Church ends up becoming a club where we are all against the government or against this heresy or against this denomination, this political party, this, these kinds of people, then it becomes a club. But the church is about Christ. 
And obviously, by implication, we are against other things, but we keep the main thing the main thing, right? Loving and serving Christ and serving his people. Seek first the kingdom of God, right? That's what should, should be our main priority. And then he says in verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And that is the reality. The power belongs to God. And the jars of clay here refers to us, right? To, to God's people, to me and you. We are just jars of clay. If you are able to see Christ as, as if you are able to see Christ as a jar of clay preaches and proclaims Christ, then of course it is a work of God and he alone gets the, uh, all the glory. So the treasure is carried by vessels, right? It is not us, it is Christ in us. So uh, we're going to skip down to chapter 8, right? And in chapter 8, so a, a major part of 2 Corinthians has to do with money. Paul encourages them to give generously. He uses the church in Macedonia as an example. So he says, verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave, them, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So now he turns it to them in Corinth, right? He says in verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you, that you excel in this act of grace also. So, if you notice there, what he's doing is uh, he links the genuineness of love, right? Uh, how you love and how you love people to giving. And he does this in verse 8. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So um, I think it was a, a sermon preached by Michael Lello where they said, show me what you spend your money on and I will show you what is important to you. Right. You can tell what is important to a person by what they spend their money on. And there's a lot of truth to that. And here Paul, Paul says, if you give, it is an evidence that your love is genuine. Right? You're, you're spending money on the people, right? helping them and their needs. You could still be a hypocrite or could be giving for the wrong reasons. But we know for sure if you're not giving, then you cannot be displaying genuine love at all. Because you are not willing to sacrifice. And so he says, I'm not saying it's a command, right? Paul says, I'm not saying it's a command, which I think is, is quite sneaky of him to do, but it's, it's also a smart thing. It's like saying, uh, I'm not saying this is a command, but if you really want to show you love God, then you're going to give, right? But then why should we give, right? Paul gives us a reason and he brings it to Christ. So look at verse nine. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So you, you read this and you think, he's talking about money. How is he going to make it about Christ? And he does. Jesus was rich, right? And when was Jesus Christ rich? Before he came to earth, right? Before he was incarnate. He pre-existed. So some scholars say, um, some scholars say that Paul didn't believe in the pre-existence of Jesus, but I think this passage says otherwise, right? And what we get from this is that the wealth of Christ, right, the comfort of Christ, 
He gave it all up and then he took on bodily flesh and became poor so that we could become rich. Now, this, this whole account from chapter 8 spilling into chapter 9 is really an amazing display of the gospel at work, right? You see the gospel practically affecting the lives of the believers. Um, you have the Jew and the Gentile and you have Jews who historically were God's people, so they thought they were better than the Gentiles, right? They thought they were above everyone else. But now there's a famine, and you have the Gentiles who could easily say, no way are we going to help the Jews. You know, they've looked down upon us. They've mistreated us. Uh, they saw us as less than human and dirty and vile. But the Macedonians actually want to give, right? They want to give to the Jews. They don't even have the means. They are also in poverty. But even in their poverty, they want to give. And it must have been humbling for the Jews as well, right, to receive that because um, in a sense it shows the transformative effect of the gospel. Not only the Macedonians are now wanting to give, but the Jews have to humble themselves in order to receive from the Gentiles, right? And the gospel does humble us. So it's a significant part of the book. It's a significant chunk that Paul gives in this book about giving being generous, loving one another, and showing it by practically helping one another. And then if you get to chapter 10, um, so in chapter 10, Paul then has to defend his ministry. And this is a fascinating part um, of all of Paul's writings because it gives us an insight into his heart, really. And what is happening is that there were these false apostles coming in and bad-mouthing Paul, right? Um, slandering him, saying all kinds of false things about him. And we will see that with the letter to the Galatians as well, that he will have to defend his ministry. And so uh, Paul, if you look at chapter 11, go to chapter 11, Paul reminds them of all the things he has done. So he's telling the Corinthians uh, in verse 13 of chapter 11, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it, is, so it is no surprise if these servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So it's fascinating because many false teachers are very nice people, right? I think of Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen seems like a very nice chap. Uh, he seems so nice, I'm tempted to think that he's, ign he's ignorant of what he teaches, when in reality that's not the case. He might actually be a great guy to hang with and a lot of these major known false teachers in the U.S., a lot of the false teachers here in South Africa, most of them seem like nice people, great personalities, right? That's how they, they pull people in. It's their winsome personality. It's their, their, their charismatic um, um, uh, character. Paul is saying, don't expect for the evil to look scary, right? Don't expect for horns coming out of their heads with blood painted all over their faces, um, with all kinds of evil-looking symbols uh, on their clothing and, and jewelry. Paul is saying the devil comes disguised as an angel of light. So don't be surprised when false apostles come along, disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. And you can, you can imagine all the things that they said about Paul, especially since Paul is a very confrontational, direct individual. And that is what you see in his letters, right? So you can imagine... The false teacher saying, Paul is quite harsh. He's, he's horrible. Look how he talks to you guys. I see how severe his letter is. And then Paul says, don't be deceived by their being nice. He says in verse 16, I repeat, 
Let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast, for you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. So you see that sarcasm coming out from him. He says, I'm going to talk like a fool and I'm going to give you my CV because it seems like you're quite impressed by CVs, right? You'd be impressed by all these false apostles, these guys uh, bragging in their accomplishments. You love to boast according to the flesh. So let me do the same. And then he says in verse 20, for you bear it. If someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face, to my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. Because that is what false teachers do, right? They make slaves of people and they take advantage of them. They put people in bondage. Then he says, but whatever, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. And in verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. So he doesn't want to talk like this, you know, I'm, I'm being a fool, I'm being a madman in boasting. But see what he does, because the things that he boasts in are not the things that people normally boast in. So verse 23 uh, or 24, he says, no, verse 23, he says, With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, uh, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of, the, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. So Paul is boasting here, right? But he actually ends up turning it around. He says, you guys have me talking like a madman, having to boast in the flesh. Well, I'm going to boast in the flesh. And that's how he boasts, right? And then he says in verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So if this was a marketing campaign, we would say weakness is the new strength right but it's not a marketing campaign and there's nothing new about this principle you see it throughout scripture and the culmination of it happened 2000 years ago which was in the death and the resurrection of Christ right god tells us that his strength is made perfect in weakness he does not say that his strength is overwhelmed by our weakness or that his strength is made unnecessary by our apparent strength Things people would normally boast about according to the flesh, uh, prosperity, success, an impressive CV, degrees, achievements, businesses, looks. Um, I've traveled to this place or that place. Paul says, here is my boast. I have been beaten up. I've been shipwrecked. I've had false brothers. I'm in constant danger. Uh, I get rejected. I have constant anxieties for the churches. He actually starts to boast about his weaknesses and it's shameful things, right? If you, it's like, if, if you... If you are really a man of God, then nothing should happen to you. That is what the Corinthian church was saying, right? That is what you and I have probably heard so much of in this day and age in, in many churches. You know, when they call people, um, you know, when they call people to give testimonies in front of church, uh, 
they don't go up there and say, I just got retrenched. My kids hate me. My wife wants a divorce. My car has been repossessed. My business has gone under administration, right? They don't say that. They always boast in worldly things. And then a lot of Christians under these false and demonic doctrines will say, God's hand is not upon you because you are suffering, right? You should be successful and prospering. Then you'd, be re then you'd really be a man of God. But here, Paul twists this so brilliantly. He says, I'm going to boast in my weakness so that God can get all the glory. And then he carries on and he says, uh, I had a vision that I went up to heaven. <clears throat> so if you look at chapter 12, he says, uh, verse 1, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to, vi to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ. So he says, you know what? I had a vision. I went up to heaven. So beat that one. Let's see if your, fa your, your false apostles can top that. And Paul says he can't even talk about it, right? And to keep me humble, the Lord put a, a thorn in my flesh. And he says this in verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And that is, that is a radical way to think and approach life. And in times and seasons when we suffer maybe illness or difficulties, where the solution lies beyond us, right? And we feel our mortality and we feel our helplessness and we feel our weakness. We see that it is really the Lord who keeps us. And that is why Paul can say he is so content and happy when he's weak because it is the Lord. The Lord has to do it, right? It has to be him who does it. Otherwise, what else can be done, right? That's, that's what the moments of weakness show us. That's, that's, that's the moments of the moments of our helplessness show us that we really need God. And the times that we thought it was us, it was actually God. And so what Paul is saying is that when those things that give us our sense of control are moved out of the way, then he's content because in his weakness, the Lord is strong. And all of us are tempted to assume confidence in, in ourselves and not God, right? We could assume confidence in our physical strength, our training, uh, our diet, our sleep, education, your gifts, your experience. But the truth is we are all weak. But those who appear to be weak and rely on God are actually strong because their strength comes from the Almighty God. They are leaning on God and not on idols, right? They are trusting in God and not um, themselves. So this is a complete paradigm shift from the way that the world thinks, that the way the world tells you to think, right? contentment with weaknesses, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, all for the sake of Christ, that is strength. God doesn't just use weak people despite their weakness. He demonstrates his perfect power through their weakness. God has used my weakness in countless ways, right? God has used your weakness in countless ways. This isn't just Paul. This is not just me or you. It's the story of the whole Bible, right? Joseph, Moses, Esther, Joshua in the battle of Jericho, David against Goliath, God uses weaknesses to highlight his extraordinary power. 
So that's something for us to keep in mind at all times. So then Paul goes on to defend his ministry. Um, and in chapter 13, uh, he gives his final warnings. So chapter 13, he says, if you look at verse 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So how do we examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith? There's, there's many passages you could look to, uh, but we, we don't have the time for that. But one thing that can help is um, when we examine ourselves, and especially maybe at communion, right? Because in communion, we call to examine ourselves. When we examine ourselves, here's what helps to keep in mind. You are not looking for sin, not necessarily. In the pres- if, if the presence of sin disqualified us from the Lord's Supper, from partaking in, in communion, then none of us could partake. Rather, what you should be looking for is love for sin, right? Devotion to sin. Um, love of your idols, love of, love of idolatry. A repentant heart is one that does not love sin, but hates it and is always trying to kill it. So if you examine yourselves and you find that Jesus Christ is in you, you will not find loyalty to the world, right? You will not find loyalty to the world, the flesh and the devil. You will see your sins, but you will also see by the grace of God, your hatred of them. And if not, there's no need to stress because Jesus Christ offers forgiveness of sins to you even right now, right? Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins and put your faith in the finished works of Christ. Okay, so okay, let's leave it there for uh, 2 Corinthians. Um, are, are there any questions? So I will just put this out there. Um, there is, a, uh, maybe for those of you who are not at Heritage, um, there is a sermon series that we currently, we put on, on pause, but going through 2 Corinthians yeah, as a whole. So um, I'll post the link to that, which goes into detail of, you know, the whole book and is really helpful. So, yeah. Um, any other questions before we move to Galatians? Otherwise, you can save him for, for the end. Okay. So let's turn to Galatians, then, which should be right after. So... Um, Okay, the book of Galatians, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle to the churches in Galatia. So this is a letter that was meant to be circulated. It's not just for one church, right? It's not just like Corinthians, a letter to the church, the Corinthian church. Um, rather, it's just, it's for the churches in the area of Galatia. It's like saying to the churches in KZN or to the churches in Limpopo. Uh, Galatia is modern-day Turkey. So where Turkey is today, that was where Galatia was. And then Paul says, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is a standard greeting in Paul's letters, grace and peace. In the Greco-Roman world, the Greeks and or the Romans, one people really, when they wrote letters to each other, they would say grace. Grace to you. Uh, grace to your family. Grace to... Um, that, that was, that it was standard. It was a common greeting in that time. But Paul here adds peace, grace and peace, grace and peace to you. Grace is a Greek greeting and peace. What is peace? Peace is Jewish, right? Uh, shalom. Shalom means peace. The Jews say shalom, which means peace. Uh, Muslim people, the Islam is also a Semitic language 
And when they greet each other, they say salam, right, to mean peace. So even Paul's greetings here are not just standard greetings. They are theologically significant and thought through. He's not just greeting, right? He's greeting both the Jew and the Gentile because the Gentile responds to grace. The Jew responds to peace, both communities. And he says, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So in today's English, let him be accursed means let him go to hell. Then he says, verse 9, uh, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So in this letter, Paul doesn't really spend time giving pleasantries, you know. Um, he doesn't give a long greeting. He gets straight to the point. There are serious problems with the churches in Galatia. And so Paul doesn't hold back. He doesn't ease into the contents of the letter. He's already pronouncing condemnations because they are distorting the gospel. And this is very, very important. And if there's anything I would like for you to take away from this session tonight, it is this. If you distort the gospel, you lose the gospel. And then you have nothing. You have no good news. What do I mean by that? What is the gospel? It is the good news of what God has done in Christ. What has God done in Christ? Christ has come. He has been born fully human and yet fully God. He lived the sinless life that we could never live. He died a death that we deserve to die. And in that death, he bore the punishment of God. He took it on our behalf. He was buried and then he rose on the third day, meaning that his sacrifice was accepted. He was sufficient. And then he, had, he ascended into heaven. All of that, his perfect life, is then, is then credited to us. And that is a good news of what Christ has done. Right? He has won a victory. Uh, he's the son of God who conquered over the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. Paul says, if you add anything to what Christ has done, if you say Jesus plus, insert whatever you want, this or that, then you have lost the gospel. And what was going on in Galatia is that there were these folks called the Judaizers. And essentially they were trying to take people back to, Ju to Judaism. You have different types of Judaizers. Some were wanting a few things to be added on. Some wanted... Uh, uh, by things to be added on, I mean like things from the law, so uh, things from Jewish practice and, and culture. Uh, so some wanted a few things to be added on, some wanted a lot. And they pop up frequently in the epistles. You will see them even in Hebrews and uh, even in Acts and, and uh, maybe a few other places. They are a real, the Judaizers are a real problem in the early life of the church. So they are saying, yes, Jesus is great and he's the Messiah, but what you need is to add something else. And in this case, the something else is circumcision. Circumcision was the main issue in the churches in Galatia. So what is circumcision? Well, you know what is circumcision. But what is its significance? It was a sign, right? It was a sign to the people of God of the covenant that they belong to God. And it had a huge importance to the Jewish people. Even to this, to this day, um, for, for Jewish people, it is unthinkable that they would not circumcise their, their sons. Uh, even Jews who, who become Christian, to them, it's important that their child is circumcised. So it's a massive thing. And the Judaizers are saying, Jesus plus circumcision in order to be saved. And Paul says, if they preach another gospel, let them go to hell. And then he goes on to defend his uh, apostleship. 
um, from which will be from verse 11 of chapter 2. And why would Paul do that? Again, because there's false teachers coming into the church and saying that Paul is not an apostle um, and that the church can dismiss his teachings. And in addition to them adding circumcision to the gospel. So they, they were undermining Paul's apostolic ministry. So he has to defend it by proving that he is an apostle. So if you look at chapter 2, um, he confronts Paul confronts Peter here, who was acting like a racist. Peter had been influenced by the Judaizers, and they were saying, look, those Gentiles were not circumcised. How can you sit with them, Peter? They are not really Jews, so don't sit with the Gentiles. Come sit with us. And then Peter was actually swayed by them, him, him and Barnabas. Um, so it was a very influential movement in the early church. If even Peter is being swept up in it, can you see that? It's not a small thing. Um, and Paul confronts Peter about it. He says in verse 11 of chapter 2, that but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And then Paul talks about justification by faith because he has to clarify what the gospel is and why it is sufficient in and of itself, right? And that is also the main thing that he dealt with in Romans. So Galatians and Romans are very similar like that. Um, Galatians was written first and then Romans. So verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in, Je in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what the Judaizers were doing is that they were adding works. The moment we add works to salvation, even if it's something like baptism, which is clearly commanded in scripture, then we are adding works because salvation does not hinge on baptism, right? The formula for salvation is Jesus plus nothing. It is faith. If we add any works, you might as well be part of any other religion in the world because they offer salvation by law keeping. People come up with religions and they come up with laws. They say, keep this, uh, keep that, and then you will be okay with God. But the Bible says you can't keep the law. And it's, it's funny because we can't even keep the laws we set for ourselves. Right? Have you ever tried to, to diet, to go on a diet? Have you ever tried to consistently go to the gym? Or have you set a financial goal? Or savings for yourself. Have you tried to aim for a certain, okay, well, that's, I was going to say a certain mark is cool, but that's a bit unfair. But um, when you set rules for yourself, it's hard to keep it as well, right? We can barely keep the rules and laws we set for ourselves, much less God's standards. So salvation has to be a gift. And for, for our church, our heritage, unless we know that this gospel of Jesus Christ is primary and essential, then in five or 10 or 50 years, the gospel will be distorted and we will become a heretical church, right? It is something we have to be fighting and working to keep and remind ourselves all of the time. Churches go sideways off the path all the time. Roman Catholicism adds a whole lot of things to the gospel, right? The Church of Christ says, unless you're baptized, you are not saved. Our human nature is always to add something else because it makes us feel better about ourselves. It used to be culturally, it used to be going to church, uh, the dress code at church, you know, praying zealously, putting on a, a Jesus piece around your neck. It used to be external religious practices that we added to the gospel. That if you don't do these things, are you really Christian? Today, uh, in our day and age, it, it's, it's more social humanitarian things that are being added to the gospel. You have your social justice buddies, 
you know, help the poor, give to this cause, fight for this movement. They may not be, those things may not be bad things in and of themselves, but they do not save anyone, right? Don't put any confidence in those things. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. So I, I remember, um, I think it was Pastor Mike said this, and it stuck with me because I think it's something that we should all take away as believers who share the gospel, who love doctrine and who love God's word. Um, a lecturer, so a lecturer or a pastor or a Christian who is teaching may be saved and may love the Lord Jesus Christ and they love the gospel. But when he is lecturing, he gets so excited about some doctrine, whether it's election or eschatology, modes of baptism, different denominations, so soteriology. He gets so excited and passionate about it. The students will go away. And what will they think? They will think, yo, the most important thing to this man is election, you know, predestination or eschatology, because that is what he gets most excited about. It's not to say that he doesn't get excited about the gospel, but he is assuming it, right? He's saying, oh, we know the gospel, right? But let me tell you about this doctrine. Like you and I can come here online and talk about all these exciting things like spiritual gifts, you know, Levitical laws. Uh, or at least I get excited about Levitical laws. I don't know about y'all. And we can end up assuming the gospel and mention it only out of habit or because it's what we're supposed to do as Christians, right? We need to be wary of that always because the people around us pick up on what we are most excited about. Our friends, our family, children, colleagues, our fellow students, they pick up on what we are most excited about, right? Imagine you speaking about, um, you know, the gospel like yeah 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 but let's let's change the topic to sports and all of a sudden you know someone breathed life into you right so you need to be wary of that is it sports is it money is it church just you know the church itself is it music is it is it art is it polit is it politics and philosophy that gets you excited or is it christ and the gospel we must also make sure to never lose the gospel as the most central thing christ as the most important person that is why Paul is so guns blazing here in this book. You can mess up any other teachings in scripture. You can get them wrong, but not the gospel. Uh, Arminians go to heaven. People who hold a different view on complementarianism or baptism or spiritual gifts, you know, cessationism, continuation, they will be in heaven. But if you lose the gospel, then we are all damned and there's no good news for anyone. And Galatians is the book that reminds us of this. So if you look at chapter 3, Paul says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So that is a great question, right? How were you, how were you saved? Was it by law keeping or by hearing with faith? It was by hearing with faith, right? And so Paul says, You begun in the Spirit. Salvation is a spiritual act. Do you think that now the rest of your walk is by the flesh, by works? And we fall into that trap a lot as Christians. I can testify to that. We are saved and then we say to the Lord, Okay, God, thanks. I've got it from here now. And it's, it's, not, to say, um, it's not to say it's let go and let God, right? That sounds spiritual, but that is not biblical. Because sanctification is very much you walking, but it is you walking how? It's you walking by the Spirit. Salvation is a spiritual act. And so the rest of your life in sanctification continues to be a spiritual act, right? God is changing us spiritually. Our sanctification 
is by faith as well, right? And it is by grace. And so um, Paul turns to Abraham, verse 16, and he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Um, and so when we looked at Romans, I think that's where I mentioned Abraham and the law. Um, Paul argues here that Abraham was saved and he had faith, but he was saved way before circumcision, right? Before the law even came into existence. So you, Judaizer, you have it wrong because clearly Abraham was saved before circumcision was a thing. So that means salvation is by faith alone, right? So Paul is proving that to them. And then in chapter 4, if you go to chapter 4, he gives the example of Hagar and Sarah. And he's using these two women to describe the picture of sanctification. So it's, it's a very, very helpful analogy um, to just like read through in, if, in your spare time and understand. He says in verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery and with the children. And, and then he goes on. And Paul is saying, get rid of the bondwoman, cast out the Hagar. Right? He's, describing, he's using Hagar to, descri to describe living by, um, by the law, you know. Um, trying to 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 live up, trying to 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 keep the law in order to get right with God, right? Uh, where the picture of sanctification is with Sarah, right? Put to death the bondage of works and salvation by law keeping. And that is the point of what Paul is saying there. And then he says in verse, sorry, if you go to chapter five, um, down to verse sixteen. Paul says, "But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other. So another well-known passage showing again the fight between our flesh and the spirit, the daily battle for Christians. Um, and we looked at this when we looked at Romans 7 the last time. He says in verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the, of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, ask yourself, is there fruit, in, is there fruit of the Spirit in my life? Is there love in my life? Is there patience, self-control? Examine yourself. Look for change that cannot be attributed to your natural disposition. So what I mean by that is if you are a naturally just a laid back, chill kind of guy or girl, you can't say, yay, fruit of the spirit, patience is within me, right? Because you are naturally patient. Look for something that you can't explain, something that was not there before Christ. This love in Galatians is a fruit of the spirit, meaning that an unbeliever cannot have this love, right? Can, can unbelievers love? Definitely. Jesus said so. 
Jesus says, unbelievers love those who love them, right? But if you love like them, then you are, you are not being different to the unbelievers. So this love is a unique love because it is only a work of the, of the Spirit in the unregenerate. It is a supernatural love. And the same thing can be said about the patience and the self-control and the faithfulness and the joy and the gentleness that he speaks about in this passage. And remember, it's not imperfection, right? Don't be condemned. Um, it's not like you have to perfectly love now or you have to perfectly show patience. Um, if you are a tree or if you are a vine, then uh, you, you're looking for fruit, right? And if, uh, if you're like a, a grapevine, you know, just if there's one little fruit, one tiny love grape, one tiny patience grape, that is a work of the Spirit. If it is, if it is any kind of, you know, fruit, it is a work of the Spirit. And praise the Lord because it means you are a child of God and He has worked, he has worked that in you. Obviously, you don't want to stay with just one grape as a fruit, right? You want to be fruitful, producing a whole bunch of grapes, filling up the whole vineyard with grapes, right? How is the Father glorified? Jesus, is, Jesus said, it is when we bear much fruit, so sanctification is a process of our lives being more and more characterized by these fruit. And so um, then we get to chapter six. Um, so the law as a means of salvation is a burden. And that is the main message here in this chapter. Circumcision is a burden, right? Law keeping is a burden if that is how you are saved. And so Paul uses wordplay here. Right? He says, you want some burdens? He says, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that is the burden that Christians should have. Not the burden of keeping the law, but the burden of keeping one another. Walking with one another, showing love and caring for one another. Being involved in other people's lives. Right, Being involved in your brothers and your sisters' lives. Superficial a relationship, superficial relationships can be amazing, right? Because you don't have to care or stress about what's going on in other people's lives. You are just there for the good times. I have, I have three nephews. My sister has three little boys. And whenever they're visiting, I like to play with them. And it's all fun and games. And I'm sure she appreciates me taking them off her. But as soon as one of them cries or is upset, it's game over. You know, boys, let me take you back to your mother. Because they are now a burden and I don't want that. And that is an example of what we should not do in relationships. Uh, it's probably what I should not do with my nephews. I should help my sister bear that burden, offer to comfort and help take care of the kids. So in the body, as, as fellow, as Christians, uh, we should be bearing one another's burdens. Be involved in your brother or your sister's life. Be praying for them. Share in their sleepless nights. Share um, in, their, in their heartbreak. Uh, share in their emotional highs and emotional lows you know walk with them and the great thing when you do that is that you start to forget about your burdens right you start to forget you stop worrying and you stop pitying yourself you know because you're focusing on others and you take on their suffering and pain and isn't that what jesus christ did right he took away obviously he came to wipe away all of our tears he came to bear our shame. He, take away, he came to take our sins, right? Um, he bears our burdens. So when we carry one another's burdens, it is a way for us to be Christ-like, right? Bearing one another's burdens. 
And so then um, the letter then ends with warnings and benedictions. And I see we're almost uh, out of time. So let's end it there. Are there any, any questions or comments? Or any thoughts that you guys would like to add? Yes, please pray that I do treat my nephews better. Um, okay, I think there's a question. So Leah's asking, doesn't understand the explanation by um, what Paul meant by his illustration using the two women. Um, what is it? Oh, is this uh, what's it? Sarah and Thingy and Hagar. So, um, so what I what 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 Paul is is doing there with that example, right? He's he's just showing. He's it's just he's using an an, an illustration. He even says it's allegorical to show what it means to, you know, live according to the law, what law keeping is and what it is to um, live by faith, you know. <clears throat> so it's, it's, it's actually a very, like, detailed um, example that Paul is given because it's filled with Jewish references, it's filled with referen references to the Old Testament. Um, so it's... That's why I don't want to go into it because it's like very deep and I'd have to recite Old Testament passages and stuff. But essentially what he's saying is um, he, there's two examples. There's Hagar, there's Sarah, right? Be like the child of the promise because they had faith, right? They believed the promise as opposed to Hagar who wanted to um, like hold to the law, law keeping essentially. So if I'm going to really, you know, dumb it down, uh, bring it down to just those two things it's um here's living by the law which is hagar don't do that here's living by faith which is sarah a uh, child of the promise do that um so yeah that's that's what what he's basically getting at so i think it's even where is it i'm just trying to put out the passage in front of me uh verse 30 he says what what does the scripture say cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman so, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So, it's just, it's a very rich Old Testament reference to, um, um, you know, law-keeping as opposed to children of faith. Uh, I hope that at least kind of makes it clearer as to what Paul is, is getting at there. Okay, just just type if it makes sense. Um, in the meantime, if are there any other questions or any thoughts you guys would like to share, please feel free. It's a public forum. Okay, seems like everybody is good.